Thank you so much, Stan, and everyone here, Kurt and everybody who made this possible. This is really such a privilege and an honor to speak to the Civil War Roundtable of the District of Columbia. When I embarked on this journey, deciding to what I thought was going to be write a journal article when I graduated from George Washington in 2008 and turned into a book eight years later, <laughs> it would only be sort of a dream that I would get invited to speak to a group of people who know so much about the Civil War. I didn't start out as a Civil War aficionado, but I was always interested in military history, and I figured that out one day when I tried to put Rick Atkinson's book, An Army at Dawn, into my bookcase, and it wouldn't fit. And so I started deciding to organize my library. So I took every book from every part of my house and laid them in piles in my basement area where I had most of my shelves I, by, by category, by subject. And it was a eureka moment. They were mostly about military history, history, statesmen, biographies of generals, admirals. And I said, and these were books I had collected for 40 years. I mean, you would have thought that somebody who had all 14 volumes of Samuel Eliot Morrison's Naval War in the Pacific and had read them all would have figured that out earlier, but I had not. So I decided I should go back to school and really learn about it. And among the wonderful teachers that I had is a man who's going to be speaking to you next year, I saw on the schedule, Andrew Zimmerman. And when I first met him, he had just begun writing about the Civil War. But he was a marvelous man. He was one of the many professors that I was older than when I started school at the age of 55. But it was a great experience for me. My interest at that time and what I wrote about and what my thesis was about centered on the Spanish-American War. And my great-grandfather, whom I remember, was a bugler in the cavalry in the Spanish-American War. And when I went to my thesis advisor, who is really one of the rock stars of military history, a man named Ron Spector, has not written about the Civil War, but has written about Vietnam, World War II. And I said, I'm really thinking about writing something after I graduate about the Spanish-American War. And he had written the first and really the only big biography of George Dewey, the Admiral of Manila Bay. And he said, Candy, I'm going to give you the same advice that I got after I finished that biography and thought I would write another book about the Spanish-American War. And he said, there ain't no Spanish-American War roundtables. <laughs> he said, find something that more people are going to be interested in. So I'd actually had a lot of help from Ed Bars, and anybody who's ever been on one of his tours knows what I mean. Ed Bars doesn't tell you about what happened. He stands there with his crop in his hand, and he closes his eyes, and he's there. And he is telling you what is happening, not what did happen. And I had the great fortune to go on a tour of Gettysburg with him, and that really sparked my interest in the Civil War. But how did I get from there to these four women? And I've been asked, were you interested in women's Civil War history? Were you interested in Lincoln? And actually, I think it was for two reasons. One, I was interested in the generals. I'd read all of these books about generals and admirals and everything. But the wives seemed to only make cameo appearances in them. Some of the more famous wives, of course, might have a biography, as Jessie Benton Fremont did, or had written her memoirs, as Julia Grant did. But most of them were really just cameos. And yet, growing up in a military family, my mother was a Navy wife, which has always been called the hardest job in the Navy. I knew that the strength and the resilience 
that she had were so important to my father's career. So I thought, these women, I had to look at some of the military wives. Now what happened was that in one of my courses, not the one taught by Dr. Zimmerman, but another one, I did a paper on William Tecumseh Sherman, who I knew very little about at that time, you know, other than in sort of Civil War reading in passing. And I saw that his wife had traveled in the first year of the Civil War to Washington to meet with Abraham Lincoln to try to rescue her husband's reputation. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. And that that meeting had gone well. And I remembered that having read about Fremont, famous explorer, first Republican presidential candidate ever, then general, I remembered that his wife had gone in the Civil War to Washington to try to save her husband's emancipation order, and that that meeting had not gone well. Well, at that time in my life, I was going back to school, but I was going to school at night. I was working during the day. I was a lobbyist. My husband and I had started our own lobbying firm. And so I thought, hmm, you know, one was a pretty good lobbyist, and one was not such a good lobbyist. And so let me think about these. One of these generals was very successful, and one of these generals was not successful. And so I decided to try to find another set of generals whose fortunes in war sort of matched the same trajectory as Fremont and Sherman. And when I looked, it appeared to me that McClellan and Grant lined right up. Let me see if I can find this one bit the beginning of my book to give you the sense of what I figured out at that time. So this is in June of 1861. At that point, Fremont, McClellan, Sherman, and Grant, all of whom had left the U.S. Army after the Mexican War, were in the Army again. John Charles Fremont and George Britton McClellan were two of Lincoln's first appointments to the grade of Major General in May 1861. By the end of 1862, neither man commanded any troops at all. Their rise to power was only slightly swifter than their fall from grace. On the eve of the Battle of Bull Run, the other two men were colonels. By 1865, though, their names were on every tongue, north and south. In four years, with Lincoln's support, William Tecumseh Sherman and Ulysses S. Grant rose from obscurity to national, even international fame. Over the past century and a half, historians have examined the childhoods, parents, relationships, friendships, rivalries, religions, philosophies, and the physical and mental health of these four generals, all in an effort to understand them and explain why their lives unfolded as they did. In nearly every study, the wives of these men make at least a cameo appearance, but their influence on their husbands' careers is rarely examined in any detail, and the women themselves are buried under the weight of his story, or history. For the most part, the wives, in the words of Henry Adams, who was a contemporary, are known only through a man. So that was why I decided on these four women. Also because in understanding it, it became clear that their interactions with Lincoln and their opinions of Lincoln had a great deal of impact on their husbands' careers. So I divided my book into four parts. As you can see, the subtitle being four women who influenced the Civil War for better and for worse. And we start out with the two that I would say were the worst. Jesse Fremont's part of the book I call Friendly Fire for a reason. And of course, you all know the definition of that. Some groups I speak to don't. It's a blow that you send that lands on your own forces. So here they are, and I try to give you pictures and the ages of these women right around the beginning of the Civil War. You get some idea of how young these people were 
who had such a tremendous influence on us. I think sometimes we forget this because we see the pictures of them as older, especially you see the picture of Grant on your currency and they're old. Now, John Charles Fremont, one of the two first major generals, is 48. Jesse Benton Fremont is 37. They're the oldest of the group of wives and husbands that I have. They met because John Charles Fremont, famous Western explorer with the U.S. Army Topographical Survey, made four different expeditions across the country mapping trails, came back to Washington each time to write those reports for Congress who underwrote his journeys. The first one, when he came back, he was seized upon by Senator Benton from Missouri, Senator Thomas Benton, one of the first Missouri senators, who had this sense of really manifest destiny even before that term was used. He really felt the future of the country was in the West. He was from St. Louis, and he would go to Fremont's Garrett, where he was trying to put together these reports. Senator Benton's youngest daughter was Jesse Benton. He named her after his father. He thought he was going to have a son, so they changed the spelling of it. But he raised her in the 19th century like a man. He educated her like a man. By the time she was a teenager, she could speak four languages and she could translate Greek and Latin. She was raised to be the toast of Washington and she was frustrated by the confinement that society had in those days for women of that era, smart, interesting women of that era. So she knew, as Mary Todd Lincoln knew, that if she was going to be ambitious in the political sphere, because she was following her father's footsteps, she had to marry a man who could be a successful politician. And she fell in love with John Charles Fremont. She convinced him to lope with her when she was 17 years old. Against the wishes of her parents, they wanted to throw him out of the house, but she insisted she'd go with him, and they weren't ready to give away their daughter. So. She took in hand those field notes that he did of his expeditions, and she wrote them up in prose. And if you were to go to the Library of Congress and find those original reports from Fremont's expedition, they're in Jesse's handwriting, and they're Jesse's prose. And they were hailed as the most interesting thing that was happening and as a blueprint for pioneers to move west. Well, what she did in their 20 years of life before the Civil War, this pattern of taking over his work and not just adding to it, but making it her own, including being pretty much the campaign chief for his 1856 Republican election was a pattern that she continued in the Civil War. And when Fremont was given the jurisdiction of the Western Military District, which was of course the most volatile area at the beginning of the war, Missouri was a border state. It was a slave state that was tenuously attached to the Union. And the guerrillas were beginning there. They come from Kansas. They were very much in St. Louis. She rented the space that was going to be her husband's headquarters. She set herself up in an office in front of his. She was called General Jesse in St. Louis at that time. And she was so intent on making sure her husband was a success. In fact, I look at her as almost like a stage mother, that when he proposed as a means of trying to bring the rebels in Missouri away from the battlefield that he proposed to declare an emancipation order saying that any person in the Western Military District fighting against the Union would have their slaves freed on his order. Jesse agreed with that and so he published it in the newspaper without telling Lincoln in advance. Lincoln got to read it in the newspaper. So this is in late August of 1861. 
At this point, nobody in the country had signed up to go to war to free slaves. They had signed up to reunite the Union. And so all of a sudden, there were soldiers in the West that were laying down their arms. There were reports from Kentucky of an entire regiment that had left because they heard about Fremont's order. And if you will all remember that famous saying that Lincoln said, I want God on my side, but I must have Kentucky. And so he asked Fremont to revoke his emancipation order. And Fremont sent him a letter back that Jesse helped write, saying, if you want the order revoked, do it yourself. Otherwise, essentially he's saying, it's going to make me look weak, and that's not a good thing. So they send off that letter, but almost immediately afterwards, they begin to think, hmm, maybe that wasn't the best response to the man who is dealing with everything going on. He's just had the first Manassas disaster. And so Jesse gets on a train from St. Louis to Washington and arrives in Washington, D.C. in early September. So this is Fremont's proclamation in August 31st of the freeing of slaves owned by men who were fighting against the Union. She gets to Washington and she arrives at the White House late at night, insists on a meeting, and it doesn't go really well. Neither one of them really behave very well in the meeting. I mean, this is the 19th century. It's Victorian manners. Lincoln doesn't ask her to sit down. He's so just struck by the fact that she has arrived unannounced to explain to him the brilliance of her husband's emancipation order. He tells her, no, you must, he must revoke it. She goes back after essentially challenging Lincoln to a duel with her husband and tells her husband not only to not revoke the order, but to continue to distribute it in the Midwest. Lincoln, understanding that Fremont is not going to revoke the order, then does what Fremont did in reverse, and he revokes the order in the newspaper and lets Fremont read about it in the newspaper. What Jessie did there was really what she did all of her life with Fremont. She helped to enable all of his thoughts and desires and actions, and she was his best advocate, but in some ways she was his worst friend. The only time that she took an action that really helped Fremont's legacy was the one time that she took an action against his wishes. And that's when Fremont ran as a Republican against Lincoln in the 1864 election. Now we all know that McClellan ran against Lincoln as a Democrat in the 1864 election. But Fremont was persuaded by the, were called the rabid Republicans, the ultra-Republicans, the people who were disappointed with the emancipation order that it hadn't gone far enough. So he was convinced to run as a Republican on the Republican ticket against Lincoln. And so what happened was you had set up this three-way split two Republican candidates and a Democrat. And Jessie was all for it until she saw a cartoon in Harper's Weekly. And I have a copy of it in my book. And it's a fascinating cartoon. And according to her first biographer, when she saw that cartoon, she realized that two-way split in the Republican Party could make McClellan president, possibly would be the end of emancipation, would be the return of slavery. And she hated slavery even more than she loved her husband. And so she maneuvered behind the scenes, Fremont never knew this, to get John Greenleaf Whittier, famous poet, famous American, who had been one of Fremont's biggest backers, to come and talk him out of running. And as I said, Fremont never knew that. So that was the one time that she went against his wishes but it was the one time that she did the most good for him. Now, part two is Nellie McClellan. We're still on the worst, and I call her part self-inflicted wounds. 
here they are. This is how old they were in 1861. He was 34 when he was named general in chief. She was 26. They were so young. She was a celebrated beauty, the daughter of famous explorer William Marcy, William Randolph Marcy, um, a military man. She refused eight offers of marriage from men, including one from McClellan, before she accepted his second one. And it's a fascinating story. She had been engaged to A.P. Hill long before he was a famous Confederate general. That was her true love. But she ended up being thwarted in that by her mother, who did a very despicable thing, which I relate in great detail, and forced her to give him back his engagement ring. And then she refused offers from several other people. A.P. Hill and McClellan had actually been roommates at West Point, so it gets really interesting. But when she finally accepted his second offer of marriage was at a time in 1860 when he was president of the Illinois Central Railroad. He had the highest paying civilian job in the country. That was not a small part of his uh, newly apparent charms, I'm sure. <laughs> but you have to think about this. This was a woman who was not able to marry the man that she loved, but she was in an era where marrying well was what a woman did. And so when she was offered this second chance to marry this man who had loved her, who had asked her to marry him, who her parents thought highly of, she did it. And you can hardly judge against her for that. When they were first engaged, and this is at least a year before the Civil War, McClellan insisted that they would write each other every day that they were apart, and they kept that promise. This is one of her few surviving letters. Now, I know a lot of you have done Civil War research, and you're familiar with cross-writing. The great advance in Civil War research is the iPhone, being able to go to the Library of Congress, not look at these on microfilm, but Go to the Library of Congress, take a picture with your iPhone, get it onto your computer, enlarge it, look at it, crisp it up. I mean, it just makes such a huge difference. Library of Congress didn't allow that when I first started doing my research, but about six years in, they did. <laughs> and so it's still difficult to do. But she wrote him every day. And we can tell this because his letters reference her letters over and over and over again but only five of hers survive. So you don't get as good a sense of her, and there's been no biography of her. But in McClellan's letters, you get even more sense of her, because think about it. If you're writing each other every day, and you're responding to what they say, you will be repeating things that they said and commenting on things that they said and commenting on them, and you will get a real sense of the person. And so, for most people have gone through McClellan's vast correspondence to read about what he thought about the Civil War. I think I was the first person to read his letters to learn about his wife. But what he wrote about other people was really, really interesting. And so here's one excerpt in June of 1861. It is perfectly sickening to have to work with such people and to see the fate of the nation in such hands. It is terrible to stand by and see the cowardice of the presidents, the vileness of Seward, and the rascality of Cameron. Wells is an old woman, Bates an old fool. The only man of courage and sense in the cabinet is Blair, and I do not altogether fancy him. And he goes on and on and on. Now. I think we're all familiar with McClellan's track record on the military side. And as I said before, he started out with Fremont, one of two major generals. And less than a year, year and a half later, he's out of command completely. Lincoln said he had the slows. But it's clear from his letters that he was paranoid and narcissistic, at the very least. Now, why I call her part of the book self-inflicted wounds 
somebody asked me about Libby Custer. Well, Libby Custer and Pickett's wife and certainly Julia Grant, they all wrote to burnish their husbands' reputations after they died. Their husbands all predeceased them and they spent the rest of their lives rescuing and enhancing their reputations. Not Nellie. I don't think she realized it, but she did not. She ended up doing almost the opposite. All of those widows who work to burnish their husband's reputation are the bane of most biographers' existence. In fact, there's one great book about writing biographies that's called <laughs> this. And if you think about it, you'll remember that immediately after George Washington died, Martha Washington burned all of his correspondence. They either destroy it or they make it all up. They make up the story. What Nellie did was something very different. Her husband had appointed a literary executor. Of course, George McClellan would think he needed a literary executor. He died of a heart attack suddenly at the age of 58, completely unpredicted. And she was still a relatively young widow. And so she goes off to Europe and allows her daughter to copy all of their letters and give them to this literary executor. Now, I've done a whole talk about this literary executor because he is an amazing person and was exactly, for us historians, the right person, for George McClellan, the wrong person. But that's because he took those letters, he took the memoirs that McClellan had written only part of the way through the first year of the war, and then completed them on his own without reference to any of the new stuff that had come to light from other generals' memoirs in the years after the Civil War. And then, just for spice, he put in 250 excerpts of those letters that George wrote to Nellie. So all of that was being published. All of his remarks, all of his disdain of Lincoln, of Seward, all of his paranoia, all of his thoughts that nobody in Washington supported him, all of his clear knowledge, because Pinkerton was giving him numbers, that the enemy was four, five, ten times greater than he was in every battle. And so, in fact, what Nellie did was hand this literary executor, William Prime, all of this deliciously trashy stuff that we see on TV these days, but that was not at all what you ever would have seen in the Victorian age, in that era. That type of stuff would never have been made published. Now, why I think that she didn't realize what he was doing with it is because her name is misspelled in the book. So this is what the literary executor published with Mark Twain's help. McClellan died the same year that Grant died, and the literary executor wanted his memoirs, wanted McClellan's memoirs to get the same treatment that Grant did. Well, of course, presented with, uh, even though Twain had no regard for McClellan as a general, he had all of this great stuff. And so he published it. But William Prime, the literary executor, calls it McClellan's own story. And if you open it up, it's by George Brinton McClellan. And it's not until you get halfway through the introduction that he sort of mentions that, you know, these letters I got from the person to whom they were written, and I've decided to put them in the book. People, when they read it, thought that McClellan had written this whole thing and had put the letters in his book. And so not only was he damned for being everything that he was and more, but for stupidity. People were amazed. If you read the book reviews of this back in 1885, you'll see these other generals who are reviewing this book for different organizations are saying, oh my God, how did this happen? So clearly, McClellan is being damned by his own words, the self-inflicted wounds.
So now let me move on more quickly because you all probably know more about these two generals and even maybe a little bit more about their wives. Eleanor Ewing was also the daughter of a senator, senator from Ohio, Senator Tom Ewing, and she lived in Lancaster, Ohio. Senator Tom Ewing's best friend was William Tecumseh Sherman's father, Charles Sherman. And the two families played with each other. I've been to the homes. They're right on this hill. There's now, there was another home that was built in the middle sometime in the early 1900s. But the kids just would flow in and out of both houses, and the fathers were just very, very close friends. When Charles Sherman died, Thomas Ewing walked down the hill and offered to take in one of the 11 children that were left homeless and penniless because Charles Sherman had a lot of debts and was trying to pay them off as a justice on the Supreme Court and had died of typhoid in his travels. So according to the family legend, Mary Sherman pointed out the little red-headed guy, William Tecumseh Sherman, or Cump. So he went to live in the Ewing's house as a foster sibling. One of Ewing's daughters was Ellen. When this happened, Ellen was four years old and Cump was nine years old. Ellen then, as I mentioned earlier, went off to a series of Catholic schools, including visitation here in Georgetown because her father not only was senator, but then became our first secretary of the interior and a secretary of the treasury. He actually rented the Blair house, Blair's Francis Preston Blair's house. So they grew up really sort of seeing each other on holidays and things, but they wrote to each other and those letters were saved. And you can read those letters. They have all been given to the University of Notre Dame and you can go online and read the original letters or transcripts of the letters between the two of them from the time they were barely teenagers. And it is in the course of those letters they changed from foster siblings and really fell in love. And you can see it happening just written out there. It's amazing. So they ended up being married at the Blair House in 1850. Sherman was encouraged to go into her father's salt works, but he had gone to West Point and he wanted the life of a soldier. Soon his family grew. They couldn't afford him being a soldier in the antebellum war after the Mexican War when pay was so low and promotions were nowhere. So he ended up doing a series of things, being a lawyer, a very bad lawyer, being a real estate developer and rental manager, very bad at that, couldn't ask anybody for money. And he tried a number of things, finally got a job as the head of what became LSU, but was the Louisiana Military Seminary. Lived in Louisiana, was building a house for them, and the war breaks out. And as soon as the Louisiana governor seizes the U.S. Armory, he leaves. He's out of there. He says, this is not right. He tries to get in the Army. By that time, his brother John Sherman has been made a senator and takes him into Lincoln. The two of them don't hit it off. Sherman knows what the South is, knows the firebrands, knows they're ready for war. Lincoln is still sort of, I think we'll keep house here. And so he goes off and becomes a banker, uh, not a very good banker. So he has a hard time getting back into the war, but he finally does in July of 1862. This is how old they were in July of 1861. So these two paintings are owned by the Smithsonian Museum of American Art. His painting is always on display, and you can't even, I mean, I tried to beg, borrow, or steal hers, but um, you can at least get a copy of the image through the Smithsonian. This portrait of her is very important because unlike all of the other wives who had lots of photos of them actually, a lot of pictures of them, even as young women, there are almost no pictures, really no picture of Ellen as a young girl. And her family was at least as wealthy if not more wealthy than any of these other families. And I began to wonder why that was. I also began to wonder about 
the characterization of her in most of Sherman's biographies, which is always very negative, that she was a hypochondriac, that she was a daddy's girl, that she was a nagging woman, that she whined, that she wanted Sherman to become a Catholic. Her family was devout Catholic. That she wanted, she always wanted to spend more money. She wanted him to stay at home. She wanted him to work in her father's salt works. But mostly it's the sense of she was this hypochondriac. It seemed like they kept dismissing her, Sherman's biographers, as always sick and always ill and always whining. Well, when I went back and didn't look at the transcripts, because this what ha happens if you rely on transcripts, some of the words can be transcribed wrong. And there was this one word that kept coming up that made no sense to me. So I went back to the original letters and I blew them up, you know, and I walked through them. And here was this word that I wasn't familiar with, but I looked it up and boom. It was the word scrofula. She had scrofula. This is not a picture of her. This is a very mild picture of a scrofula victim. Scrofula is a disease that was transmitted in the milk of tubercular cows before pasteurization was invented. And pasteurization was invented in 1864. So scrofula was a very common disease all the way through the Civil War before pasteurization became very widespread. And you can transmit it if you have it. A woman can transmit it through her breast milk to her children, and there are indications that several of her children had it. She suffered from it all her life. And I show this to you because, first of all, I'm the first person who ever identified what really was going on with Ellen during all of these years, but also because I think it is a testament to William Tecumseh Sherman that he could see past this terrible disease to love her and to marry her and to raise a family and be with her his whole life. She was the only one of these four women who predeceased her husband. When she did, he was running up the stairs in their apartment in New York years after the war saying, Ellen, Ellen, wait for me, wait for me. Nobody has ever loved you as I love you. But Ellen was not merely a victim, she was a fighter. And as I said in the first part, she went to Washington when her husband had been declared insane because he was having a nervous breakdown in the aftermath of Robert Anderson's departure from the Army of the Cumberland, and he was forced to take over the post that he had specifically asked Lincoln that he not be given, and yet then Lincoln ended up giving him that position in charge. It's such an interesting story and she not only traveled, let me just take this back, to Washington for that trip, but she also traveled, she kept trying to be with her husband as much as certainly Julia Grant, as we'll talk about later, and Nellie McClellan were because Nellie and George basically lived in Washington and managed the war from there. But Sherman didn't want women in camp. He didn't like the way McClellan was conducting himself. The one time that he let them come to camp, his family, was in the aftermath of the Vicksburg campaign. And she brought four of their children. And as Sherman was being sent to relieve the siege of Chattanooga, their son Willie died of typhoid. And Sherman was just completely inconsolable, and of course so was Ellen. They had another child that was actually conceived at Vicksburg, but he died during the time that Sherman was marching through Georgia, and he was out of communication, and so it wasn't until Sherman got to Savannah and read the newspapers that he read the obituary about his son who had died. But she was a fighter. She was amazing. She was the most patriotic person certainly of all these four women, the most prominently patriotic. And this was in an era when Catholics were considered to be people who really gave their allegiance to the Pope and not to the country. Julia Grant, center of gravity. You all know so much, I'm sure, about both Grant and Julia, so I will only give the highlights here. Again, they were young. She was the sister of one of Grant's roommates at college, Frederick Dent, and when he went to visit his roommate's family, he met Julia. 
he fell in love instantly. And she pretty much did too. And after a difficult time of getting together because her father was very much against her marrying a military man, they did marry. Now, Ulysses Grant was the warrior, but Julia Grant was the road warrior of the Civil War. I calculated with the aid of MapQuest and not counting all of her journeys, and little small ones, but as best I could tell, that she traveled in those four years, actually it's really only like three and a half, but over 10,000 miles to be with her husband. Most often with at least one of her children and sometimes with four of them and with a slave for some part of it until the Emancipation Proclamation. The thing that makes this even more remarkable than it just seems when you look at this map and imagine it is that she suffered from a pretty debilitating eye defect. She had what's called strabismus, which means that one eye or the other, they don't focus together. Now, you can call it cross-eyed, sometimes it's wall-eyed, but the technical term is strabismus. And what that does is, first of all, it makes you very self-conscious. So you know that you look odd to people. And so you'll see, she's always in profile when she can be your three quarters. I mean, this is, this doesn't this look like Ma and Pa Kettle here. This is uh, when they went to tour a silver mine after their world journey. She's looking away from her husband, whom she loves, because she just doesn't want to be photographed. Now, here is a rare full-face photograph, and so you get to see some sense of it. But she was always uncomfortable with it. That's not the worst of it. What is almost always the case, and I worked with several neuroscientists, including one who had strabismus, and didn't even know it until later in life, is that you don't have any depth perception and you really see the world in two dimensions. Things look like a painting. When you step to something, you're not really sure where it is. And so think about traveling 10,000 miles with four children by horse, by ferry, by carriage, by boat. It's a, such a remarkable testament to her love for him that it just really overwhelmed me when I realized it. And when one of her great-great-grandchildren, Ulysses Grant Dietz, um, read my book, he said it's the first time that they could ever figure out what was going on with her because she would rarely write to him. Writing was the hard thing for her, as it is for many strabismus. Reading was hard. So you get these letters where he's saying, did you get my Brigadier General's commission? Did you get my dead brother's silver watch? You know, you didn't tell me. She would write back these letters that seemed entirely unconnected to his because she had trouble reading them and she wouldn't trust her family to read them to her because her family was for a while, a long while, very opposed to her marriage to him. So she's a very complex character. And again, to my mind, like Sherman, it's a testament to Grant that he could overlook this, but then, Grant's personality was really that of a shy person and a person that was very settled in himself and that wasn't loud and exuberant. And Julia made up all the cheer that he didn't have in him with the added bonus of not being the most beautiful woman in the room that uh, people could not take their eyes off of, which would have made him really shy. So that really is the story that I have, although there are a million little stories encased in this book. And the thing that I most hoped for, even though I first thought that Jesse Fremont was going to be my favorite person and then turned out not, <laughs> and didn't know that much about Ellen Sherman and was amazed by her tenacity, knew nothing about Nellie McClellan, and yet what an amazingly enigmatic and tough person to think that maybe you didn't really love this man and then he turned out to be a very controversial figure and you still had to keep going on and on and on and reading all of his bad press even after he died. She's one I would love to talk to and then of course Julia Grant 
theirs really is one of the greatest love stories in American history, and I hope to tell that in part. So I appreciate it. I've talked too long. If you have any questions, I'm happy to answer them. Um, I'm just curious, what was the word that they mistranscribed? Scrofula. When they typed it out, it was S-I-R-U-T-O. And so even trying to Google that, you couldn't come up with scrofula. Yes? There's a famous Sherman statement that he wouldn't run for president if nominated and will not accept if elected and will not serve. I've heard somebody say, well, he was trying to protect her because of the anti-Catholicism, if she would be a Catholic first lady, what, or during the campaign, what she would have suffered. Mm -hmm. That's why he was so dead set against it. And also, if you could comment, I also heard that his eldest son, who was gonna be his heir apparent, turned out to be a priest. And he got very angry at her and blamed her for that. And I'm just wondering mm -hmm. if you could comment on those two things. Happy to do it. The first one, there is clear indication in some of his letters that he knew that he couldn't get elected if he ran because his wife was Catholic. And not just that, I mean, the Pope knew who his wife was. She raised money for the Pope's Diamond Jubilee. She was a very active Catholic, and all of her children, too, and her mother. Now, their father was not, but he converted on his deathbed. So to say that the tempers were against Catholicism is as about as mild as you can say, because it was really, really very, very strong. But that was an important factor. But the other thing is that he hated politicians, and he hated politics. Now, he completely understood the civilian military chain of command, unlike McClellan, shall we say. Um, <laughs> But he respected that, and he respected the offices, but he hated politics. And the only time that he ever got involved in politics was at the end of Grant's life, when Grant was writing his memoirs, because he had no pension. He had given up his military pension when he became president, and there was no presidential pension, and then, of course, he had lost all of his money in his son's scheme. So he went to the Congress and lobbied for Grant to get a pension. And that's the only time he even wanted to be anywhere near politicians. And he had gone through the thing with Stanton and Grant and stood up to all that. But there's a book called Grant and Twain, written by a man actually who lives here in Arlington, that tells a very moving story of that, and especially those last few hours when they moved the clock back so that they could pass Grant's pension. But then the other question had to do with the son. Yeah, well, what happened was, I mean, here is how I read it in his correspondence, and some of it was very definite and some of it wasn't. He did have this son, Tom, who became a lawyer, went with his father on this long trip out west, right during the Battle of Big Hole, um, spent months with him, and this is after Willie's death. So Willie, who had died at Vicksburg, was Sherman's embodiment of himself, and he writes about it letters to everybody. You can't imagine how many letters he wrote about how Willie was like him and how all of his hopes and dreams were with Willie. And Willie was the one that was going to raise him. And essentially what had happened was that Willie was Sherman's son and Tom was Ellen's son. And Tom had always wanted to be in the priesthood. He had embraced the church as a young man, but once Willie died, tried to do what his father wanted him to do, went to law school, you know, learned finance and everything, but he couldn't do it. And they come back from this long railroad trip, three or four months together, and Tom says he's going into the priesthood. And it is a severing of the family, not just him. And literally, Ellen and the children move away for a while, and they don't get reconciled for several months. It's a very difficult story. And when Kump is on his deathbed, because Ellen has predeceased him, so it's just his children around him, and 
After Ellen died, he had written that the only thing she ever wanted was for me to become a Catholic, but I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I think it's partly because his father was a Mason, but, and so he was honoring his father. But he never did it, he never did it, and so he's on his deathbed, and the children, who are all Catholics, Tom is in London, he's a priest in London, and he tries to get on the boat back, but they call in another priest, and they have the last rites said over him. And <clears throat> unlike Ellen's father, who had at the last moment asked for the last rites to be said over him for his wife's sake, for his wife's sake, for Ellen's mother's sake, Comp never asked that. He was basically comatose. And so the children call in a priest when his brother John Sherman is out of the room, and they basically say the last rites over him, and the press erupts about this. I mean, they have been on Sherman ever since he was called insane, and when he gave those first lousy surrender terms to Joe Johnston, and I mean, they've just been after him forever. But John Sherman comes in and says, you know, no. He said, if I had been there and the priest had come in, I would have let him do it. But it's a very dramatic, you know, when you start writing something and start researching something, you go off on these rabbit trails. And so I followed the trail of Tom Sherman, the priest. And fascinatingly, goes back to my interest in the Spanish-American War, Fred Grant, the, the Grant's oldest son, was a general in the Spanish-American War in the Philippines. And Tom Sherman was the priest, the chaplain attached to his unit. So they served together in the Philippines. But Tom Sherman had terrible nervous breakdown and ended up being committed to an insane asylum and committing suicide. There was some small reconciliation with his father before he died, several years before he died, but he had his own demons, and it's a very tragic story. Your next eight years, <laughs> part two, is there going to be another four Union generals' wives or Confederate? Neither. And I was talking to the gentleman over there that this book really sort of channeled my mother's experience as a military wife, I felt, and my experience being the daughter of a military wife. and. My next book is something that I haven't been able to get out of my mind for more than a decade as I've read all of these books about war and war on land and war on sea. And it's going to more channel my father's experience. Nobody has written a book about the history of death at sea in combat in the United States Navy. And I'm hoping to be the person who does that because I read all of these books and especially if you've read like Drew Gilpin Faust's book about death in the Civil War and she talks about how the bodies are identified on the battlefield and how the families are notified and how this new type of embalming came on and was a craze and then how did the public mourn and how did they mourn. Nothing about the Navy, nothing about death at sea. There's no book. Individual ships that sink, you got it. But still, nobody talks about, you know, you get a notice at home and your son or father or husband has been lost at sea. And what happens? There's no body. There's not even a battlefield you can go to. You can't even find the place and go say grace over it. And then every variants in between. We got our traditions about burial at sea from the Royal Navy. How has that changed? Did we put a different spin on it? What's different today? You know, they always say to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And so to a Navy brat, I'm always asking, well, what about the Navy? What about the Navy? And I had several other things I really thought would be great topics, but I know even if I spend the next eight years doing that, then the next eight years I've got to do this one. What mm -hmm. was the relationship of Longstreet with Julia Dent and uh, Grant? The question is what's the relationship between Longstreet and Julia Dent and Grant? Longstreet was one of her cousins and was also a roommate for a time of Grant at West Point. And some of the reports say that he served as best man in their wedding. And then, of course, after the war, 
Grant took great pains to try to rehabilitate a number of Confederates that he felt had been unjustly even treated among the Confederates. But there's this family relationship, and Longstreet at West Point was called Pete for no reason, they say, but Pete Longstreet, you can see that happening among guys. And just as Ulysses Grant was called Uncle Sam, so I'll get one more. Yeah, you, you mentioned lack of presidential or general's pensions, mm-hmm. and yet the husbands died before the wives. What happened to the widows? How did they survive? Well, in those days, you could apply for a widow's pension, and that's actually what happened with Jesse Fremont, because her husband died and had no pension, and then he went and finally got a pension. His post-war years were really tragic, especially for her, but he did a series of investments that went wrong and affairs and all sorts of things. But he got this pension in Washington. He went to New York to visit a friend, got sick and died. So literally within a week, he had a pension and then he didn't. So then widows could apply for pension and so then she would, then a number of people applied for a pension on her behalf. And so she got it. She got a widow's pension, but she had to lobby for it. And if you go to the pension building in Washington, that's why it's called the pension building. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. That was it. Was it was a clearly hands-on, feet-on. You had to travel there, and you had to show what you had. One more. And claim mercy. Since you mentioned Ed Bars and also an infectious disease specialist, uh, one of Ed's favorite stories is that one of the reasons that McClellan did not marry Ellen Marcy is because he knew that APL had gonorrhea because he had been in, in New York the weekend he picked it up. <laughs> he went to Mrs. Marcy and told her that APL had gonorrhea, and so he warned her and did his benefit, of course. I mean, that is essentially what happened. The end part of it is that Mrs. Marcy told Nellie that A.P. Hill had a venereal disease. And we know that Mrs. Marcy and McClellan were sort of pen pals because he had been still trying to win her over for years. For five years, he corresponded with her mother (laughs) to try to get her to marry him. And so it seems only natural but I've never seen that proof. And the only things that I have seen are the, the most remarkable letters that I found during this, and that have been quoted in some of the biographies of A.P. Hill, but to read them in the Library of Congress is astonishing. The letters between Mrs. Marcy, between Ellen's mother and McClellan, and Ellen knew nothing about these letters. It turns out that somehow A.P. Hill found out that Mrs. Marcy found out that A.P. Hill had a venereal disease, or maybe even she was just willing to use that, because that was not an uncommon thing at that time, (laughs) to get her daughter to give back the engagement ring. Almost a year later, A.P. Hill finds out that that's why Nellie gave back the ring, because she never told him why she gave back the ring. A.P. Hill writes her father this long, amazing letter in which she says, you know, you have to do something about your wife having said this. You at least have to tell me who it was who told your wife this, because otherwise I'll never be able to marry, you know. It's like, this is the end of my life, and everybody knew how much he loved women. So so then Mr. Marcy writes Mrs. Marcy, because now they're far apart. He's some posting some ways, and says, did you tell this to my daughter? Hill says it's not true, and if it's not true, then you must let her marry him. You must. In in this letter, he's saying, this is the worst thing. We've got to let her marry him. Well, then that's sort of the end of the trail there, because somehow she never, I think Mrs. Marcy, who just really liked George McCullen, was not going to let her marry him, and so it peters out. Now, here's what goes through my mind when I hear this, and then I'll quit. But I'm going through this whole tragic story and trying to figure out, did Ellen really ever love George? Was it purely a marriage of convenience? She was a good wife to him till he died and the memoirs came out. But, you know, during their lifetime, they were, uh, they seemed a very happy couple. And so what happens when he dies before she does? 
and she finds all these letters, and she finds out that. I mean, I think, oh my God, what an awful thing that would have been for her to have known what was going back and forth between her husband then and her mother and her father, you know, saying, you should have been able to marry the man that you truly loved. Oh my gosh. Anyway. Thank you so much. <laughs>